Hello, Midwestern Marks watchers. I'm Carlos Garrido from Midwestern Marks. I'm joined with my revolutionary brother, uh, my um, co-founder uh, um, of Midwestern Marks and my co-host for the Midwestern Marks podcast, Eddie Liger, mix of lion and tiger smith. Um, I'm also joined today uh, by a very special guest, Compañero Ramiro Sebastián Fuñez, who's a revolutionary Honduran-born uh, comrade who runs a YouTube channel by his same name, Ramiro Sebastián Fuñez. Uh, we'll have it linked in the description. Um, but he has a few interesting uh, segments on his YouTube channel. One of them is called Unmasking Imperialism, which is a live show. I had the opportunity to participate in it a month or so ago. And it does a tremendously good job at doing precisely what the title says, which is unmasking uh, the variety of ways in which imperialism materializes itself. He also has a good series, uh, a really good series called Nicaragua Against Empire, which includes a phenomenal documentary in which Ramiro covers the history of the Sandinista struggles. Uh, and he does so from Nicaragua itself while talking and giving interviews to various Nicaraguan revolutionary and militants active in the revolutionary process. The same segment uh, produced uh, a recent published video uh, where uh, Compañero Ramiro is in Nicaragua for the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution, and he interviews uh, the people of Nicaragua about how they feel in relationship to the revolution and the anniversary, and it's, it's a beautiful segment. We'll link both of those to the description, but plus revolutionary history, uh, how they've uh, countered imperialist propaganda and how we continue to uh, um, critique imperialist propaganda and also to discuss the upcoming elections in November. So, Compañero Ramiro, good to have you on. Thank you guys for having me on, Carlos and Eddie. I've been following your channel, Midwestern Marks, for some time. You guys have uh, some great content. I especially like the TikTok videos. I think those are really good and adapted to the next generation Gen Z that consumes media and bite-sized content and being able to produce content that promotes Marxism and socialism within a matter of seconds is very important. And I think is, an, is, an, is a skill that we all as content creators, as communists, as leftists have to learn and adapt and apply. And it's a pleasure speaking with you guys. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you for that. I've been wanting to do some more uh, TikTok coverage of Nicaragua. Um, I've been following it um, pretty closely here, but uh, now I've really enjoyed uh, starting to dig in depth on what's been going on. And I've been using some of the resources you put out um, in order to do that. So yeah, really excited to do this podcast. And I guess the first question we have is, is one related to the long-term history of Nicaragua. Um, and that is, can you talk a bit about the figure of Augusto Sandino, his anti-imperialist struggles and how his legacy has been resurrected in the Sandinista National Liberation Front? Augusto Cesar Sandino is a very important historical figure, not only for Nicaragua and Central America, but for Latin America and the world as a whole, people who support the liberation of oppressed and colonized people around the world. Getting into the context of Sandino, it's important to give some background into Nicaragua and how he came about, because the same way I think George Meyer Chicarilla has a great book, uh, we created Chavez where he gives a backdrop as to how neoliberalism and U.S. empire led to the rise of Chavez and how he was a response to neoliberalism. 
It's important to do the same with Nicaragua and with Sandino. So Nicaragua was part of the Central American Federation this year, this September, in a few days, actually on September 15th, is the bicentennial of the Central American Federation, 200 years since the quote unquote independence of Central America in 1821. This year is eight, uh, 2021. And like any other Latin American country was colonized by the Spanish and for a brief time was also annexed by the Mexican empire, which only lasted a few years. But in 18, uh, there was the Central American Federation that comprised of the five nations of Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. And this was a federation that was modeled very similar to what Simon Bolivar and Miranda and others in South America had La Gran Colombia with Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, etc. And this was a very popular model of governance at the time because you had the United States of America, you had Bolivar's famous quote saying that the U.S. is plagued by destiny to conquer Latin America in the name of liberty. And very quickly, the Latin American nations understood that in order to prevent any sort of imperialist intervention and to maintain sovereignty, we needed to have federations, large policy, uh, political entities that can defend themselves against the empire. So Central America was modeled similar in that regard, just like also there was Argentina, provincias de la, del Rio Plata, and Uruguay, Argentina. You also had, uh, for a brief time, Bolivia and Peru, uh, Andean Confederation. So Central America had a confederation led by Francisco Morazan, who was born in what is today Honduras, Francisco Morazan, interestingly enough, was in the same uh, Masonic Lodge as Simón Bolívar, La Logia Lautaro, which was a revolutionary Masonic Lodge at the time that was organizing anti-Spanish independence movements. It played a somewhat of an anti-imperialist, anti-colonial organizing role at the time. And so Morazan was a uniter. He wanted to keep the province, the countries, the five countries united. That's why on the Honduran flag, you'll see five stars that represent that United Confederation. And Morazan was murdered. He was murdered by nationalist right-wingers who wanted to split up and balkanize Central American Confederation. They were backed by the British who actually set up a coastal colony along the coast of Honduras and Nicaragua called the, the Mosquito Coast, which they call it. It's, it's actually the Miskitu because the Miskitu are the indigenous peoples of that coast that stretches from Honduras down to Nicaragua. And that's why you'll see a lot of English names along that coastline, Bluefields, Corn Island, et cetera. And the right-wing nationalists who were backed by the British, obviously this was part of a divide and conquer strategy because the British saw that the Central American province had the capability of being the strongest naval power in the Americas. Because Central America, let's keep in mind, is sort of the choke point between North and South America. You have act the thinnest margin of land between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So you can easily access both oceans. You also are right in the middle between the two major land masses of North and South. So Morazan wanted to develop Central America as a naval power that could dominate the, the hemisphere, defend itself against the US. Obviously the imperialist powers were against that and they fought very hard to balkanize the region and that's exactly what happened. But that dream of Morazan of keeping a united Central America as a federation lived on in people like Sandino. And Morazan was assassinated later on in the 1800s. Later in 1850s, you had the rise of a figure named William Walker, who was from the United States. I believe he was from Kentucky. I have to double check that. But he was 
back then what we would call a filibuster or a pirate. He basically sailed from New Orleans, the port of New Orleans to Nicaragua, declared himself president. He established English as the official language of Nicaragua, which is interesting because Nicaraguans speak Spanish and, and other languages. And he reinstituted slavery. Nicaragua at that point had already abolished slavery and he was a Confederate, he was from the South. He wanted to expand the Confederacy as part of his strategy. And this was the, the broader Confederate strategy known as the Golden Circle. And their goal was to make a huge, to expand the Southern Confederacy from the South to incorporate the Caribbean and the Northern coast of South America to create a huge giant slave plantation where they can grow cotton, sugar, crops, etc. So during the 1800s, you had many other people like William Walker go and invade Nicaragua to attack to colonize the region, exploit its resources. This is within the context of the California gold rush in the mid 1800s, where you have so many businessmen who were wanted to head westward and building railroads were way too expensive at the time. So naval travel was much easier. And before the construction of the Panama Canal, they were attempting to construct the canal in Nicaragua, which is why William Walker was very interested in that piece of territory because there's a river that actually flows directly through the Caribbean, through the Pacific in the South. And so for many years, the US imperialists have been very interested in dominating Nicaragua geopolitically. There is no oil the way Venezuela has, there is no extremely rare commodities or rare earth minerals, but it's mainly its geographic strategic location. And so into the early 1900s, the US invades Nicaragua more than 12 times during several uprisings. And Augusto Cesar Sandino, born in the late 1800s and the 1890s, he is a very interesting figure because he is alive for very crucial historical events. He's alive during two main events that I want to point out. One is the Mexican Revolution, 1910, and the other is the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917 in Russia. And he's greatly inspired by both revolutions. And Sandino himself was indigenous. He was someone of Nahuatl origins in Nicaragua. He was a campesino, working class, indigenous, socialist, anti-imperialist. And he was a close collaborator of Farabundo Martí, who was a Salvadoran communist who founded the Communist Party of Central America, which was the first communist party in the Americas, aside from the Communist Party of Peru and the Communist Party of Chile, which were being founded in the early 1920s by Jose Carlos Mariategui and also Chilean communists in Chile. So these, this is the very early on of communist organizing in Latin America. This is right as Lenin is passing away, Stalin is becoming the new leader of the Soviet Union, and Farando Martí and Augusto César Sandino have this meeting, have these visions. Of these They actually met several times in Honduras, which borders El Salvador and Nicaragua, and their goal was to reinitiate the vision of Morazán, of the United Central American provinces. However, this time modeled as a Soviet confederation, a socialist republic, a unity similar to what the Soviet Union had, because again, this is the early 1920s, the Soviet Union was organizing this confederation, the, the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic, they were joining with Ukrainian, uh, Uzbek, Kazakh so Soviet Republic. So they wanted to create a similar model in Central America. And Sandino was leading the efforts of starting uh, a Nicaraguan Socialist Republic, Fernando Martí, the, the Salvadoran one. And they also, interestingly enough, collaborated a lot with the CPUSA at the time, 
uh, William Z. Foster, the Anti-Imperialist League of the Americas, several in the common turn, Fernando Martí actually traveled to New York for a meeting of the common turn. Sandino was un unable to go, but Fernando Martí was able to represent him. And so here you have a guy, an indigenous peasant who grew up in an illiterate family, who's talking directly with some of the biggest communist figures, Stalin, with, with uh, Mariategui, with uh, Maceo, you know, so you have all the, this, a lot of interaction at this time between communists in the global south. And Sandino was very inspired by the Mexican revolution and Emiliano Zapata. He actually spent a few years in Mexico, in Southern Mexico, learning from the indigenous socialists in Mexico and the anarchist movement as well, studying the Mexican revolution. Uh, he never traveled to the Soviet Union, but he was greatly inspired by it. And in the late 1920s, early 1930s, the US Marines invade Nicaragua. Sandino is organizing a peasant army, a guerrilla army against the Marines. So he's one of the first revolutionary leaders of Latin America to go into hand-to-hand -hand combat with US Marines, defeating them in several battles. He was actually, he understood the terrain, the jungle, the mountains, and he actually was known as being somewhat of a jokester, a prankster. So he would leave, he would sneak into the US Marine bases leave notes saying you'll never conquer us or Yankee go home and stuff like that and then just like dip out. So he was he was always known as to the US Marines, he was known as a bandit, as a bandido and or a bandolero. And there's a song that says, you know, the Siang Bandolero, they called him a, a, a bandit, a bandolero. And he was known as that this charismatic figure who worked with the peasants. And unfortunately in the early 1930s, I, I believe 1932, he was captured, turned in by Somoza, who was at the time working with the National Guard. He was executed and basically from the early 1930s, 1934 to about 1979, Nicaragua had been dominated and ruled by a right-wing US-backed conservative capitalist neo-colonial government called the Somoza family dynasty that carried on this exploitative system for decades. So Sandino, you know, before we get into the Sandinista Front and the Sandinista movement, Sandino was always this hero, some, somewhat like what Zapata is to Mexico, what Jose Martí is to Cuba, you know, what Bolívar is to, to South America, and he was a, a revolutionary figure. So I think he's somebody that is unfortunately very also underrated within the left, very understudied. Most people don't even know who he is, unfortunately, but he has such a cool history. Well, that's a brilliant uh, reflection. I do agree. It's it's one of the most underrated figures and and Nicaragua overall in their socialist struggle um, is and we've talked about this before and we'll talk about it today. Um, for some reason, uh, it's under supported by socialists around the world. Um, so uh, maybe part of that is the lack of uh, knowledge that people have of the revolutionary history uh, of Nicaragua. Um, so another question related to the long-term history, at least in relationship to the context we're in today, um, how does the Sandinista revolution of 79 come about? What are some of the struggles it faces in building the revolution? Um, and also, I, I believe this was the first socialist revolution in which religion had a major role. Can you talk about that role that religion played? Um, what are some of the improvements the revolutionary government makes uh, in this first phase of the revolution and how and why is power lost in uh, 1990? So starting back off to where 
the murder of Sandino. So basically from the 1930s to about 1979, you have the Somoza family dynasty that rules Nicaragua with an iron fist. They kill anyone who's suspected of being a communist, a leftist. They collaborate with Fulgencio Batista. And actually it's under the Somoza family dynasty that in Nicaragua, where a lot of the right-wing paramilitaries from Cuba were trained before they trained in the Everglades, a lot of the right-wingers trained in Nicaragua and were backed by the Somoza dynasty. They also used Nicaragua as a launch point for the coup against Jacobo Arbenz in 1956 in Guatemala and United Fruit Company. And you also had, uh, just basically Nicaragua was used as a, a platform of oppression and resistance in the, re in the region. So in 1959, obviously had a major impact, the Cuban revolution. And this was a huge defeat for US imperialism in the region and also an, an inspiring moment for Nicaragua because it showed that a country just like Nicaragua that was impoverished, colonized, can liberate itself from the empire, can fight back. And in 1959 and 1960, you also have the Algerian uprising against colonialism. And in Algeria, you had the National Liberation Front. And at the time with Nicaragua, the Sandinista movement was founded by Carlos Fonseca, Tomas Borges, Daniel Ortega, and several other people. And they founded and modeled the Sandinista National Liberation Front, similar to the National Liberation Front of Algeria, but they added Sandinista to it to adapt it to the local conditions. And these were Marxist-Leninists. They started off as Marxist-Leninists inspired by the Soviet Union. They understood that you have to adapt socialism to the local characteristics of every country. And not only was Sandino a hero for the Nicaraguan people, but also we're talking about a country that is overwhelmingly Catholic, that is inspired by liberation theology, by supporting the poor against the rich and under interpreting the story of Jesus Christ and the Bible as a revolutionary anti-capitalist story. So they organized the Sandinista Front. Actually, one of the main bases of organizing were in the churches. Those were some of the first places where they would organize. And interestingly enough, what they would do is that in churches, they would have chalkboards or they would have, they, they would go to the churches dressed as like priests or dressed in very religious gowns and outfits so that if Somoza's troops came in, they would just say, oh, we're at mass right now. We're just like reading the Bible. But then once the guards would leave, they would replace the Bible with like the communist manifesto, flip the boards, have the, the, the strated, the guerrilla warfare strategies on the boards and put on their olive green. So they use the churches as clandestine meeting points and they organize themselves, especially in the rural areas along the Northern coast of Nicaragua, the border with Honduras, which is the poorest part of Nicaragua, the heavily indigenous working class peasant communities. And so Carlos Fonseca, Tomas Borges, Daniel Ortega and others, they're organizing this movement throughout the sixties and between the 60s and into, by 1979, they build enough power, not only in the rural areas, but also in the cities. And I think that's very important because a lot of times revolutionary movements get stuck in that phase where you're just in the fields, you're just in the, in the rural countryside, but the Sandinistas were also able to organize in urban areas and they did both the rural and urban guerrilla warfare, which is important. And that's how they were able to win the Sandinista revolution so basically, in the 1970s, obviously, Salvador Allende elected 
to president in Chile in 1970, and he was removed in the coup in, in 1973. And so the Sandin that was a big organizing point as well, because there was a factor of the Sandinista movement that was more for electoral reform. They said, you know, let's participate in elections. And the Sandinistas were like, no, the Somoza regime is not even allowing us to participate in any elections. We have to do this as an armed uprising, an armed revolution. And by 1979, after many years of atrocities, bombings, Somoza's regime and family, they bombed an entire area. I actually visited this neighborhood, this area called Esteli, where you have that famous picture of a young Sandinista holding a Coca-Cola bottle with the Molotov cocktail, and he's like throwing it at the at Somoza's troops. That area, that whole area was bombed with planes that were armed and funded by the US government. And Somoza's regime carried out some really horrific acts. And by 1979, he was so unpopular and the Sandinistas were organized in every single block of the whole country that they were able to liberate the country. Daniel Ortega, who is the president of Nicaragua today and, and is still the president, he, uh, he's, he's one of the OGs I consider because he is somebody who saw that from beginning to end. And Ortega is the last living president to come to power in an armed guerrilla revolution. Because even, for example, in Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel is part of the new generation of Cubans, you know, matters like for him, but he, he wasn't alive to see that direct struggle. Uh, Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro as well, he came to power with elections. And in other countries, I think probably the last one who was alive just recently was Mugabe in Zimbabwe, uh, who came to power in an armed revolution. He passed away. So even in Angola, there's new leadership that, that wasn't around for that. So Ortega, he's seen that everything. He was around for Fidel. He was around for Salvador Allende. He worked directly. Also, Nicaragua had a very strong relationship with uh, two entities that's very undertold. Uh, one is the, the PFLP, the Palestinian Front for uh, Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and also the Workers' Party of Korea. And he traveled to DPRK several occasions, met with Kim Il-sung and actually cited him as one of his biggest inspirational leaders as well as Fidel Castro. So Sandinista has come into power in 1979, causes a huge uproar internationally and within the region because this was just like Cuba, how 90 miles away from the US, Nicaragua's in Central America, pretty close to the US. So you had all these articles you know, Time Magazine had an article, Reagan sees red with Daniel Ortega's face. And people were worried that in the US at least that there would be a socialist revolution throughout Mesoamerica because also let's keep in mind the, the context. In El Salvador, you had the FMLN. You also had a guerrilla movement in El Salvador in the 80s and in the, in the early 80s, late 70s that their movement was inspired by Faraundo Martí and they also wanted to reinvigorate this unity, this union of Central America again. So this, we're, we're hearkening back to this idea once again of a united socialist Central America that the FMLN was getting ready. They were on the cusp of taking complete power in El Salvador and their plan was to reunify Central America under with the Frente Sandinista. And obviously the FMLN, unfortunately, you know, they, they were part of the peace talks and later were, were quashed, but that's a whole nother conversation. But at this time, also in Guatemala, you had a huge uprising of Mayan indigenous peoples who were part of the, the guerrilla movement in Guatemala as well against uh, Efraín Rios Montt, who was a, a right-wing evangelical 
Christian neocon backed by Reagan, who was backed by Israel. You had IDF training death squads in Guatemala against the communist Mayans who were uh, also in solidarity with Nicaragua. As well in Southern Mexico, you had, this is a little before the Zapatista uprising, but Subcomandante uh, Marcos, who was one of the leaders of the, of the Zapatista movement, he also spent time in both Nicaragua and El Salvador learning from the FMLN and the FSLN and were very inspired. So you see this kind of cross-border collaboration between Southern Mexico, which shares a lot of common with Central America, indigenous, rural, highland communities. So the US intelligence apparatus was very scared of seeing the sort of communist indigenous uprising in the region. And so you have in 1981, 1982, the rise of the Contras, the counter-revolutionaries that were armed and trained in neighboring Honduras, where my family's from. And my dad's hometown was actually the, the training ground of the Contras. My dad has told me horror stories about the horrors and atrocities committed by the Contras. They would get sacks of money that said USAID, which is straight up cash racks. And they would go to restaurants, bars, you know, ring up the tab to like $1,000, get drunk, uh, you know, shoot up heroin, do coke, they will sell coke, they brought coke to, to the US, you know, the, the US, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, they, the Contras were, were part of that collaboration, just check out Gary, uh, Gary Webb's the book, The Dark Alliance, you know, he has tons of stuff, and, and you speak to people in Honduras as well, who will tell you directly that the Contras were directly collaborating with the Colombian drug cartels, the, the rise of the Mexican drug cartels, bringing drugs into the US, smuggling them, killing communists. And this was also around the same time on the other side of the world in Afghanistan. In 1979, 1980, you had the socialist revolution in Afghanistan, the SAR revolution, that also was a, uh, an uprising. And the US armed and trained the Mujahideen to fight against the socialists in Afghanistan. They were also portrayed as freedom fighters, as heroes, as pro-democracy opposition. Same strategy and tactic that was used in Afghanistan was used in Nicaragua. So you had the US funding these right-wing fundamentalist terrorists who were, in the case of Afghanistan, trafficking opium, in the case of Nicaragua, trafficking cocaine. And they were used to terrorize and attack. So even though the Sandinistas won in 1979, the war continued because now you had right-wing death squads from, the, from Honduras coming down, attacking, invading Nicaragua, killing innocent people, they, in some cases, the Contras would even dress up like Sandinistas. They would put on the red and black bandana and they would like massacre a whole village. And then the news headlines would say Sandinistas kill, you know, X village. And they would do this as well in the indigenous communities in the Miskito coast that we were talking about earlier. And so that's where you had all these accusations of Sandinistas are committing genocide against the indigenous Miskito people. It was Contras dressed in red and black, you know. So these are the kind of false flag operations and tactics that were used against the Sandinistas to support. And, and this is the, also the rise of sort of the, uh, as my friend Caleb says, the synthetic left tactic where you, you weaponize identity reductionism or you, know, you point out legitimate grievances with indigenous peoples or oppressed peoples, but then you weaponize them against an anti-imperialist state to make it seem like they're the enemy. And, that, and this is where we see this tried and tested in Nicaragua with the Miskito people where you had at one point Russell Means who started off with some really interesting stuff, but then later on collaborated with the US intelligence agencies, flown to Nicaragua, doing all these campaign videos with the Mistitu saying, you know, 
support indigenous liberation, fight the Sandinista. This is why we need to support the Contra. So, you know, we see this happening early on. And so basically into the early 80s, the US uses the strategy of the Contras, attacking Nicaragua, bombing, state, just creating as much chaos and terror as possible to prevent the country from, from growing. And obviously this is hard. You're fighting a two front war. You're trying to build up infrastructure once you're in power. And this was complicated because of the US Contra war. So basically from 1979 to 1989, this is regarded as the first stage of the Sandinista revolution, which, which came to power in 1979. Unfortunately, 1989, 1990, there was an election, uh, Violeta Chamorro who represented the UNO coalition, which is a neoliberal coalition. She won the election, uh, quote unquote, won in, which was very contested because there was very minimal participation and you had so much devastation from the Contra War that was blamed on Nicaragua. So they were saying, oh, do you want to keep going this way? Because this is how the Sandinistas are running your economy to the ground. Also keep in mind 1989, 1990, the, the, the destabilization of the Soviet Union. So you had no longer had a huge trading partner. The same thing that happened with Cuba, Cuba entered the special period at this time, very tough moment for the left. And this also was the case for Nicaragua. So. Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas stepped down. They said, look, that's whatever, like they, they have to admit the fee at this moment. And from 1990 to 2006, you have the neoliberal era in Nicaragua and all the gains that were created by the Sandinista revolution of land reform, all the millions of acres of land that were given to campesinos and peasants were privatized again. All the rights for women, all the literacy rates went back down again all the hospitals and schools were privatized again. So neoliberalism struck Nicaragua like, like a lightning bolt and it, it affected the country. So they know very well what neoliberalism is. And this was a huge defeat for the Sandinista. So that's, those, those are sort of the conditions that led to that point. It reminds me of the phenomena that Naomi Klein, who's a social Democrat, but she has some decent analysis of Latin and Central America, um, shock therapy, she calls it, where neoliberalism is implemented on um, on a country and, and the different effects that that has. So I think you've given us some really great um, historical context here. Um, we were I was just doing a stream and, and we Googled uh, Nicaragua in the news and all that we saw was, you know, um, op, or, uh, Ortega cracks down on opposition forces. These opposition forces are in jail. And then we, we watched a video of journalists on the ground in Nicaragua and the opposition forces are calling for mass murder in the streets um, and calling for bloody coups and, and bloody riots. And you see, you know, what these what these CIA backed, you know, opposition forces are really about and, and why the anti-imperialist socialist government, you know, often has to crack down on them. A lot of times these are literally murderous gangs um, being funneled money and weapons by the by the U.S. Um, so uh, next, I want to ask um, a little more about the, the recent history. Um, now that you've covered a lot of the long term history for us. Um, so after losing power in, in 1990, as you mentioned there, uh, 17 years later, Ortega and the Sandinistas came back into power. Um, so how did that phenomena arise? Um, what sort of tactics did imperialism and the national reactionary bourgeoisie uh, use to prevent the election of Ortega? And what role did the victory play in the emergence of the first pink tide in Latin America? Um, and what are some of the improvements and challenges faced in the second phase of the Sandinista revolution? So from 1990 to 2006 was the neoliberal era. Everything was privatized, everything, all the rollbacks, all the pro uh, progress made was rolled back. 
And the people saw, very quickly saw how bad the living situation was in Nicaragua, especially, this is a very important point, especially the millennial, I was born 1991. So then everyone who was born around my year, 1990, 1991, 1992, we were able to see, at least especially Nicaragua, how bad neoliberalism was to get a taste of it. And I think this is very important because a lot of times what happens, this is, has been the case, unfortunately, in, in other socialist countries that never had a rollback like that, like uh, Cuba or the Soviet Union, where once you have the second, third, fourth generation of youth who grew up after the revolution, and there was stability, there was growth, albeit challenges, right? Sanctions, blockade and all that. But for the most part, there was never a huge, complete rollback a lot of times people will take it for granted, the progress and the gains made. So you have the initiation of a new generation, Sandinista youth generation, my generation, the millennial, that was organized and became militant against neoliberalism. That was horrible. At this point, Nicaragua became the second poorest country in Latin America after Haiti and had tremendous amount of poverty. There was Hurricane Mitch, which was one of the hardest hitting hurricanes in the hemisphere for many years, completely wiped out the country, thousands of people died and so much infrastructure collapsed. And this was a huge wake up call for Nicaraguans and Daniel Ortega in 2006 wins the election and is part of this new generation of what they call the pink tide in Latin America and the Caribbean. At this point, Hugo Chavez had already won in Venezuela in 1999 uh, Fidel Castro was in power in Cuba and, and was able to remain in power, the Communist Party of Cuba. Uh, Evo Morales, 2006, Rafael Correa in Ecuador, Lula in Brazil, uh, Kirchner in Argentina. So you had like these, this whole new era of, of leftists who albeit came to power in, a, in, an in elections and, and through the uh, parliament and stuff like that, which is fine because it also is adapted to a new reality. And Daniel Ortega quickly changed because again, remember, he's somebody who came from the guerrilla warfare movement. He, him and his brother were Sandi lifelong Sandinistas. Daniel was actually tortured for and, and imprisoned for several years in a Somoza prison. And he had to flee to Cuba for a certain point. And he underwent some of the roughest torture ever that one of some of the Sandinistas went through. And so he had, he had so much damage and pain inflicted on him and he had been through so much as a growth fighter, but he understood that Marxism is about adapting and changing. You can't apply the same methods that you applied in the 70s to 2006, 2007. It's a totally new context. And he understood that very well. And so he changed the Sandinista Liberation Front. He understood also the important role of Christianity and Catholicism. So you have the slogan, uh, 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 solidarity, Christianity, socialism, that was implemented as one of the new Sandinista slogans. They incorporated elements of religion that was progressive into Sandinismo, but also pro-Afro-Indigenous -Indig culture as well. And basically from 2007 to the present, this is now the second stage of the Sandinista revolution where a lot of progressive gains have been made. A lot of those lands were re-given back to the peasants redistributed to the working class. They have, there have been so many programs aimed at uplifting people out of poverty. One of the things that's interesting in Nicaragua is that they collaborate with the private sector in a way that prevents people from wanting to uh, collaborate with foreign capital. So instead of 
I think this is something that can be controversial on the left because if you say, and it's actually changed my position on small businesses. I think that you can't have small businesses under a 21st century socialist model as we see in, in Nicaragua and Cuba is beginning to develop as well, where instead of allowing, you know, totally banning businesses, you know, people are going to want to have businesses regardless. And instead of just banning them, Nicaragua is like, no, look, let's help you out. Let's help you. If you're selling Nicaraguan food, we're going to help promote you. If you're promoting Nicaraguan society and culture, we're going to help develop you. So there are uh, micro, what they call micro entrepreneurs in Nicaragua. They got funding and help from the government. So if you're a fruit vendor, a street vendor, or you want to open up a little restaurant, the government helps you. They, they get a spot for you. They help you get started. Same with family farms as well. One of the things that is really impressive about the Feminista Revolution and Nicaragua is that over 80% of the food that is produced, that is eaten in Nicaragua is, is produced in Nicaragua. So there's food sovereignty. They're not dependent on other countries for foreign aid, which has unfortunately been one of the weaker spots for Cuba being an island, of course. I mean, the blockade has totally fucked over Cuba and, and it's still a big issue it faces, uh, but also unfortunately for Venezuela as well. Um, you know, Venezuela actually recently has been cooperating with Nicaragua a lot in terms of building food sovereignty. A lot of Venezuelan uh, agroecological students have been attending school in Nicaragua. I, I got to visit one of these schools actually where you have students from all over Latin America and the Caribbean who come to learn how to build family farms, how to create, grow where you're planted. And, and that's really the motto of the Sandinista revolution in the second stage is to bridge the contradiction and the gap between the urban and the rural, which is something that Lenin and Stalin talked about a lot in the Soviet Union, where you had the strata of urban workers who are very divorced from the, the, the peasants and the countryside. And how do you build socialism in a way that helps uplift both? And Nicaragua has been able to do this with not only helping uh, urban workers with micro entrepreneurship and setting up restaurants, and farming stands that promote clean food and vegetables, but also helping uh, campesinos in the countryside to set up homesteads to have family farms. If you're a young family and you have several kids, the government rewards you. Like every, the more food that you grow and the more crops you grow and the more kids that you grow have as well, uh, you, you actually get more like cows and pigs and livestock and they send technicians to help you grow your family farm. I visited a few of these actually. And it's just a beautiful thing because especially with COVID-19, we see how many people are kind of tired of urban living, kind of tired of living in a cramped urban honeycomb. And in Nicaragua, you go and you go to Managua and it's, it's so green. Uh, the, even the homes in Managua have little gardens and you go to the countryside, it, it's the, there's no disparity between the, the urban and the rural. So they've been able to bridge that contradiction very well. And that's why in 2018 with the coup attempt, the coup plotters were kind of cosmopolitan urban private school uh, in Spanish, what we call fresas or like kind of bougie college kids who, you know, never picked uh, anything in their life, vegetables or anything. And so the, the campesinos in Nicaragua are firmly with the revolution. So that food sovereignty has been one of the biggest gains of the second stage of the Sandinista revolution today. We have the lowest crime rates. Nicaragua is the safest country in Central America. Compare that to Honduras, which is right next door, which has the highest crime rate in the Americas. And zero drug trafficking, no gangs, 
no poverty the way you see in other places. So it's night and day. And, and mind you, these are all, Central America is very small, right? We're talking about countries that are like the size of, you know, you guys are in the Midwest, right? Like Indiana, it's like, imagine if Indiana, uh, Illinois, and like uh, Missouri were all Central America, it'd be like Indiana socialist, Illinois is capital. You know, we're talking about that, roughly that size and very similar culture, but totally different realities. And it just shows you that if you change the economic base of a society, if you begin to build socialism, you can change the society in a progressive way. We're not inherently sexist. We're not inherently violent. We're not inherently backward. It's the economic system that forces us to act in that way. And Central America is a perfect example. Carlos and I have actually discussed a lot uh, when talking about Central and Latin America, like the geographic size, um, just the, the size of these countries compared to, um, you know, in the United States where we're at and, um, you know, it's good to keep in mind that a lot of these countries are attempting to build socialism and they're the size of a state. Like you said, they're trying to develop food sovereignty as the imperialist United States is using the largest military in the history of the world to hold them under blockade, you know, when, when the country is, is very small, you know, um, even in physical size. Um, I think you also make a good point that I, I hear Vijay Prashad make all the time um, about how Westerners struggle to understand like the rural regions um, of countries in the global south and how many people live in these rural regions. But um, and not only that, but the success of socialism um, or part of the real success of socialism in the last century and this century has been creating systems of social welfare and, and doing land distribution in these rural regions. Um, where, you know, you have peasantries or, or agricultural populations. Um, and it's something, you know, there is an agricultural or rural versus urban divide in the U.S., um, but it's very difficult for Westerners to understand um, what these rural regions are like in the global south um, and what socialist movements have done in bringing health care and, and other systems of social welfare to the rural regions. So um, that's very interesting there to hear, uh, hear you talk about that in Nicaragua. Um, but the next question here I have is... Uh, um, about the NED and about imperialist tactics um, against Nicaragua and other countries in the area. So in 1983, the National Endowment for Democracy was created, and it's essentially a private version of the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, it's officially a non-governmental organization, which can act as a, a regime change arm for the State Department without being directly tied to Washington, uh, as the CIA is. Um, although the U.S. Congress is, is where the NED gets the majority of their funding. So, you know, in, in everything but name, they are an arm of the State Department. So how do uh, non-governmental organizations like this or direct arms of the State Department like USAID and the CIA um, work together to funnel money into opposition groups or anti-communist media? Um, and how have those different organizations evolved um, uh, since uh, the funding and arming of the Contras? Or, or you even went farther back talking about the filibustering missions uh, launched into Central America um, in the 1800s in the time of American slavery and Southern slavery. So um, how have those, how have the imperialist organizations and tactics evolved um, over time uh, up till modern day? Um, it's interesting you mentioned the NED because the president, the first president and the remaining president of the NED is somebody who has studied Nicaragua very carefully and came to rise around that time. Uh, Carl Gershman, who's the president and the remaining president of the National Endowment for Democracy, appointed by Reagan, hardcore Zionist, by the way, hardcore Israel supporter. And in his youth, interestingly enough, he came from the Trotskyist to neocon pipeline. He was very inspired by uh, Bill uh, Irving Crystal, 
uh, and his son, Bill Crystal, is a huge neocon who promotes the occupation of Afghanistan. And he's part of this group called the New York Intellectuals and the Trotskyites who opposed the Soviet Union and studied very carefully the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia. And that 1956, 1960, around that time period, you have this new strategy by the CIA of attacking the left from the left. And this is also within the time period of the Sino-Soviet split between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China in 1960, 1961. So into the 1960s and the 1970s, part of the US strategy of attacking the Marxist-Leninist left around the world was to support Maoist and Trotskyist groups in other countries that were opposed to the Marxist-Leninist movements. Angola was a great example of that with the MPLA being a Marxist-Leninist movement that was very well organized, liberated the country. And, and unfortunately, the US supported the UNITA coalition, which was comprised of nationalists, but also interestingly enough, was comp comprised of Maoists. Uh, in Afghanistan, you also had the U.S. supporting Maoists against the SAR revolution, the People's, Democrat, uh, People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, the ML party. And also in Chile as well, you had U.S. supporting, covertly supporting Trotskyists and Maoists against Salvador Allende. And in Nicaragua, it was the same thing too. You had at, during the, especially in the more modern era, you have this group called the MRS, the Movimiento de Regeneración Sandinista, Renovación Sandinista, which claims to be even more Sandinista than the Sandinista National Liberation Front. So they're coming at it from the left. They're saying, no, we're even more, we go even farther. You guys aren't revolutionary enough for us. And that's why we have to overthrow you. And it's just some of the crazy nonsense. And it's interesting because I, I used to live in Ecuador as well. And me and my girlfriend used to live in Ecuador for some time. And I, obviously, I supported uh, Rafael Correa, who's the president, uh, democratic socialist. You know, he, he was very progressive. He was a good president. And I supported him, even though, obviously, my views are a little more to the left. But there were uh, Maoist anarchists and Trotskyists in Ecuador who sided with the banking, who the president who's now today, Lasso, Guillermo Lasso. And they would march, no, no kidding, like no joke, they would march, like anarchists, Maoists, Trotskyists, they would march with signs that say, fuera Corea, you know, vota por Lasso, like vote out with Corea, vote for Lasso. And it's just insane. So that strategy was used very carefully in Nicaragua. Carl Gershman, who was the president of the National Endowment for Democracy, understood this very well in his youth. He was part of the Young People's Socialist League, which was associated with what is now the, the DSA. And there's a lot of interesting connections that we can go into, but that relates to the how the US and the Trotsky's movement collaborates to attack the MLs. But basically that strategy was used in the 80s with the MRS uh, to even to this day, that, that still they still do that. You'll find often a lot of people, especially a lot of boomers who were in Nicaragua in the 80s or in the 70s, and they have fond recollections of the Sandinista revolution. Margaret Randall, she has a book called Sandino's Daughters. You have the photographer Susan Mesales, who took the fame, a lot of famous pictures of the the, the uh, bare-chested woman who was feeding, breastfeeding her child and had the rifle. Uh, you know, a lot of people like this who grew up in that time period, and they say, "I'm Sandinista, but I'm not for Daniel, right?" I'm, I'm so, and, and we've seen them do the same thing with Venezuela, where they'll say, "I'm Chavista, I love Chavez, but I don't like Maduro." 
And that happened a lot, especially in 2017, the 2017 protest, 2014, with what they call the Voto de Castigo against the PSUV. So that same strategy has been used by the NED, Carl Gershman. He understands that tactic very well, that just going in and supporting someone like a Pinochet or Batista or Efraín Rios Montt, these openly right-wing fascist people, that's no longer trendy. You can't do that. It's bad PR. So now the new strategy to attack the left from the left, you have to support a group that claims to be more revolutionary, that claims to be real socialist, real communist. And this is something that's very deadly because it's been used in Nicaragua against Daniel Ortega because you have certain bases of people who say, yeah, I'm Sandinista, but I'm not for Daniel. He's too reformist or he's too this or he's too that. They don't fit their checklist of ideological purity. And it just shows you how dangerous this ultra left understanding of ideological purity can be because that sentiment is very much used against genuine leftist movements that albeit have their problems, they're not perfect. And, and this continues to be the case. And even today, the NED and the USAID, they fund all these quote unquote human rights groups in Nicaragua that are backed by uh, the US government observers. And it's just, they operate through the NGO industrial complex. And that's why in Nicaragua, they have cracked down on some of these NGOs and, and rightfully so, I think, because they're taking money from the US directly, they're taking orders. And they also, one of the most recent uh, interesting aspects of the NGO imperialism that has been going on is the green imperialism because in 2013 you have protests that spring up against the planned construction of a canal between Nicaragua and the People's Republic of China to finish that project to compete against the Panama Canal which is dominated by the U.S. to create a people's canal in Nicaragua connecting Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Immediately the NGOs the Oakland Institute, all these quote unquote environmentalists who, you know, they love burning sage and they love all the aesthetics of the environmental movement. They're like, we need to stop Ortega. We need to, you know, take him out, uh, you know, all this stuff. It, so you have the weaponization of the quote unquote environmental movement as a sort of green imperialism where they say, you know, now you're not allowed to, okay, the, the Western countries can develop themselves. If you're a global South country, you're not allowed to develop yourself because you're going to tear down this forest. You're going to, well, you know, destroy these waters, even though all the studies conducted about the canal show that they would do it in the least impactful way possible. They had a whole ministry dedicated to monitoring that whole process, saying that it was fine and also had the consent of the people in those areas. So it wasn't like they were displacing people and leaving a shit show it was the opposite, you know, they were working with the people, people want that because it's jobs, it's access to transportation. And it just shows like this kind of racist chauvinist mindset that people in the imperial core countries have that they kind of fetishize indigenous peoples, especially in the global South and say like, we have to preserve their customs and the, you know, the word, the headdress and stuff. It's like, no, indigenous peoples in the global South, they want roads, they want hospitals, they want infrastructure. And they're okay with development as long as it's eco-friendly and, and, and in, in alignment with the environment. Same strategy was used in Ecuador against Korea with the, uh, the oil. Uh, same with Evo Morales as well. The, you know, he wanted to construct a road through this area that had been more uh, secluded. And they were like, he's tearing down trees. You know, he's destroying it. It's like, 
uh, we need a road to bring hospitals and schools to this, these remote areas. So again, right, they're, they're weapon, they'll roll out Greta Thunberg and say, how dare you? And, and that's the new strategy that they're using against the, the global South. And, and so that's one of the interesting uh, roles of the NED, the USAID and the NGO industrial complex is weaponizing the environmental movement against anti-imperialist countries. I think you said that uh, brilliantly. Um, yeah, this attacking the left from the left, it's so big and you can see it. I, I think during the, the hot period uh, of attacks on Venezuela, uh, CLS Strategies, which is one of these online um, sort of tools of imperialism, one of their most successful anti-Maduro accounts was a Chavista account that was like, we're Chavistas, but anti-Maduro for so and so reasons. And they discovered that it was like a CLS backed and filled with bots and stuff, but um, that's huge. And people in the US just eat it up and, um, and we'll get to some of that uh, later in the interview. But um, in 2018, as you've hinted already, there was a coup attempt in Nicaragua uh, that not too many people actually on the left in, in the US know about, but can you, speak, can you speak a bit about the role of American imperialism and national reactionary forces in this coup? Uh, specifically, can you describe how and why the imperialist media narrative on the protest was so successful in creating the fantasy that it was a young progressive, uh, that it was young progressive dissenters that were squashed by the quote-unquote Ortega dictatorship? Um, so what, yeah. So it's interesting because the 2018 coup attempt in Nicaragua was one year after the attempted coup in Venezuela, 2017, the huge protest that quote-unquote huge protests that were going on against the PSUV. And they literally copy and pasted the same strategy, hashtag SOS Venezuela, hashtag SOS Nicaragua. And basically the, uh, the, the IMF and, excuse me, and the World Bank and all these institutions were trying to force Ortega into adopting more harsher or austerity measures that he opposed from the very beginning. He, he was against it and he wanted to increase the taxes on the private sector to be able to pay uh, for some of these things. And eventually he even rolled them back, but they still basically, the initiation of the protests were saying that he was being too right-wing. So that's the interesting thing, right? Like they, they started the protests saying, even though it was right-wingers, the private sector who launched the, the protests, they were like, oh, he's implementing austerity measures, this, this, and that. These austerity measures would have been imposed on the wealthiest Nicaraguans, not on the poorest Nicaraguans. He always said that from day one. And they immediately started the protests, the private sector, all these bot accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all these fake pages came up out of nowhere, but they also had sleeper cell pages as well. They would set up pages that for many years were apolitical, were just kind of cultural or random reference stuff related to Nicaragua. And then the second the protest started, they immediately switched and were weaponized. So there was a lot of sleeper cell accounts and profiles that were built up over time for that moment. So that, that I think was really interesting. We saw the same happen in Bolivia as well in 2019 with the, the coup against Evo Morales, where these random accounts just you know, sprang up and just started spouting anti-Evo uh, propaganda. And in 2018, the private schools, the, the private sector and the private schools they all began protesting. And interestingly enough, a lot of the protests were drugs and weapons were being smuggled in from El Salvador and Honduras 
And the Nicaraguan police actually released reports detailing the co collaboration and connection between gangs like MS-13 and Barrio de Ocho and the Nicaraguan opposition, where they would bring in weapons and, and drugs. And, 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 and a lot of those were used to combat the Sandinista police. And a lot of the opposition people were paid as well. Some of the more working class opposition protesters were just straight up given cash and be like, you know, here's 20 bucks, let's go tear shit down. And again, right, that's not to say that Nicaragua is perfect. Of course, there are problems. The biggest problem is sanctions. And, and there's also a blockade against Nicaragua. There's also economic sanction, sanctions against Nicaragua that make it hard to develop. And so they capitalize on that sentiment. They fomented these protests. Innocent people killed. They dragged, they would mark uh, Sandinistas' houses, uh, you know, to signify like Sandinistas lived there to go kill them. And they would burn people alive, horrible, horrible, horrible stuff, the same way like in, in Venezuela. And what's interesting is that within the left, some of the conversations were like, well, why, like, what's going on? Like, why aren't the Sandinistas mobilizing against the opposition protesters? And this goes back to the conversation we we're having about Daniel and his understanding as an OG, as somebody who saw everything, the, the birth of the Sandinista front, the, the armed struggle, the successful revolutions, the how imperialism continues to transform itself. And he said, look, wait a sec, give them, give them time, let them, whatever, let them tear down some signs, let them break shit. We can fix that later. We're gonna defend lives as much as we can, but let them make a mess because they reveal themselves by going in and showing that they have no other program but just tearing down, privatizing neoliberalism giving them time to make a fool out of themselves. Because if you immediately react, if you immediately strike back, and trust me, the Sandinistas could easily do that. I mean, it's interesting because Nicaragua is uh, everywhere we went. I mean, I was just, me and my girlfriend were just there a few weeks ago. Like everywhere you go, Sandinista flags, the majority of the, the right-wing Nicaraguans have already left and they've already moved to like Miami or California or other places. So the majority of the population is working class Sandinista supporters. So the the work, the base, the, the community militias of Sandinistas are ready and mobilized. They're organized block by block. And they were ready, man. They were at the gates ready to attack these protesters and they would have easily overpowered them. But Daniel understood very well that if they were to do that, if they were to use more force than the enemy, immediately mainstream media, you know, bloodbath, Sandinistas, uh, Atroc commit atrocities against the opposition. And I'm glad in Venezuela, the same thing, Maduro also had the foresight of understanding that in 2017 as well, where you had the Chavista, the Bolivarian circles that were also ready to mobilize against the opposition and said, no, we don't need a bloodbath on our hands. Let them make a fool out of themselves. I don't know if you guys remember 2019, there was also a coup attempt in Venezuela on May Day, I think. It was so pathetic. It was like Capriles and, uh, no, who was it? It was like these two or three of these dudes in just a random block. And they, they just shut down the street. They're like, we're taking over. Nobody took them seriously. And they made a complete fool out of themselves. And that strategy at first, I'm not gonna lie, when I was in my more kind of ultra phase, ultra left phase, I was like, we need to go in and crush them and wipe them out. But like with experience and time, you come to see that it's the art of war, right? Sun Tzu, let the enemy destroy himself. Because once you feed into that, once you take the bait, once you, exactly, there you go. Once you, once you 
take the bait, right? Because that's part of the, the bait, the strategy. Once you take it, the enemy pulls you in, right? And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, uh, Combat Eddie, you, you may be familiar with this as well with martial arts and, and, and fighting. It's like, if you give the enemy even an inch or two, they can use that leverage to pull you back into that struggle. There's so much, and, and even Mal talks about this, right? And in terms of warfare. So you have to pick your battles wisely and don't enter a battle unless you plan to decisively win it. And also in the 21st century with social media, you have to understand that everything is about narratives. Wars now are about narratives. And if you attack more than your enemy attacks you, you're gonna be painted as the bad guy. So you gotta be careful about how you use that force. And so quickly, that's what happened. You know, They let them make a mess. They, unfortunately, some horrible acts were committed People were beat up, killed, but thankfully the Sandinistas were able to reclaim. A lot of those people were kicked out, jailed. Some of them went to Costa Rica, some of them went to Honduras, some of them went to the U.S. And now Nicaragua is even more solidly pro-Sandinista out of that because, again, they got another taste. Just like how between 1990 and 2006, they saw the destructiveness of neoliberalism in 2018, they got another brief taste of that, that violence that capitalism brings. And that's even what Daniel Ortega says himself. Socialism is not about violence. It's not about chaos. That's what capitalists do. That's what the imperialists do. They're, they're the ones who bring violence. They're the ones who bring chaos. We want to preserve peace. We want to preserve unity. And, and that's what they've been able to do. And that's why people support the Sandinista government, because it's been through Sandinismo that Nicaragua has remained the safest country in Central America the fastest growing economy in the region. And I think that's the biggest lesson of the 2018 protests. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's funny that you brought up Sun Tzu um, because in, in my copy of uh, The Art of War, I took notes with two different um, pens. One of them, or one color pen was for notes for wrestling, for combat sports. And then the other color pen was lessons I learned uh, relating to politics. Um, so it's funny that you related them there. Um, and brought up that book. And yeah, I was along with you. What struck me when you were talking about that, there was, I've told Carlos this, I, you know, have said Maduro and the Venezuelans should arrest Juan Guaido, you know, and throw these violent opposition members in jail. But uh, as you're saying, you know, it's, it's more tactical than that, um, because that would be blown up in the imperialist Western media and possibly used as justification for more um, regime change efforts. And, you know, it really shows um, something that's been striking me this whole time is the interconnectedness of these uh, socialist revolutions in Central America and uh, South America. Um, not only that, but the interconnectedness of the U.S. imperialism attempts against these countries, right? You have these uh, governmental and non-governmental organizations like USAID, um, the NED. Uh, in Latin America, you have the OAS, um, who, which have uh, been created with the purpose of controlling the um, political and economic systems in these countries. So not only is their struggle for socialism interconnected, but also the imperialism attempts are. And, you know, you've seen in Cuba and Venezuela the exact phenomena that you were saying with these opposition members destroying property, you know, and attacking government grocery stores. And um, it makes them look terrible, right? It makes them look like what they are is right wing, um, basically terrorists. Um, and, and with the bot accounts that you brought up too, 
Uh, we saw that in Cuba with the recent SOS Cuba protests, um, where it was proven that the State Department was funneling money into this group called Proactiva Miami, um, who was creating all these bot accounts to support regime change in Cuba. And actually, we ended up getting banned. Um, we were one of the loudest voices, obviously, right away, um, attacking the regime change efforts in Cuba and, and poking some holes in the Western narratives. And, and uh, we were immediately bombarded by these bot accounts and, and uh, our account was banned for basically the whole time the protests were going on. So again, you know, same, same tactics of imperialism and, and you see imperialism um, evolving um, in, the, in the modern era and the era of technology. Um, so uh, the next question though, with the elections coming up in November, um, what's the political climate like in Nicaragua today? Um, how do the people feel about the revolutionary government? And what can we expect from the toolbox of imperialism to be used against Ortega in these elections? And what needs to be done by the revolutionary movement to defend against the attacks from imperialism? Uh, so I was recently in Nicaragua in July for the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution. And I interviewed a lot of people on the street and to hear their thoughts about their support from the Sandinista Revolution you can check out that video, by the way, it's called Sandinistas Speak, Nicaraguans Defend Their, Their Revolution. And this is a few weeks ago and people are mobilized in support of their government, their revolution, people defend their process. Right now, it's there's a feeling of peace and calm, but it's uneasiness because they know that around election time, that's when the imperialists stir up trouble. Somebody will go out into the street and start an opposition protest and there is a feeling of uneasiness. There is peace and calm, but it's kind of like the calm before the storm. Overwhelmingly, everyone I've spoken to in Nicaragua, even like when I wasn't recording and I was just wearing regular clothes, like nothing that signifies being a Sandinista supporter. Like me and my girlfriend were, we went to this plaza. Uh, I'll give you just a short story. Uh, we went to this plaza called uh, in Masaya. This is a, a city called Masaya in the outskirts of Managua. Masaya is one of the hardest hit cities by the coup protest. They burned and bombed like part of the market. And so we went to this market, we were just buying like clothes or whatever. And, you know, we're just casually like looking at stuff. And the lady's like, yeah, they burned and bombed this whole part of the market. Our businesses were shut down during this time period. It was horrible. And I support the Sandinistas. They, you know, they have helped. Like just everyday conversations I had with street vendors, with taxi drivers, with people who work in the stores, everybody has, that's the interesting thing about Nicaragua is like everybody has a story and it's multi-generational too. Like you talk to older folks who are like, yeah, I remember when the guerrillas came and liberated our town and, and this and that. And then you talk to the youth, like generation, uh, Gen Z, Zoomers or millennials. And they're like, yeah, we're Sandinistas too. And we fought against the coup plotters. So it's like cross-generational struggle against the imperialists which I think is very important because that maintains that revolutionary ideology across generations. And it prevents sort of what we've seen in past revolutions where the new generations who already were comfortable and didn't see the hardship before were the ones who ended up betraying the, the socialist revolution. So overall, I'd say the sentiment is very calm in support of the Sandinista revolution. People point out that there are problems, like there are issues but everybody knows that they're because of the blockade and because of sanctions and capitalism, not because of socialism. I think that's what's really important as well is that people, because Nicaragua had that neoliberal period that was very harsh, they know what free market capitalism is, Adam Smith, shock doctrine, all that stuff. 
they don't want to return to that, you know, because even now, for example, students who go to school, there's free education, free uh, healthcare, all that stuff. People would lose that, you know what I'm saying? The government gives checks, stipends to students to get food, to get clothes. People would lose all those benefits if the, if the Sandinistas lose the election. So materially, the, the masses of the people have skin in the game. They have something to lose. And they understand very well that it's not socialism that is creating problems in Nicaragua. It's US imperialism, it's blockade, it's sanctions. And they're very well educated and organized around that principle. So overall, I'd say the sentiment in Nicaragua is optimistic. People are developing, they're developing small businesses. Like there's one part, for example, in Managua that me and my girlfriend went to on the anniversary of the, the revolution, there's a street called, uh, there's a street where they have a huge Hugo Chavez statue that leads to the Sandino statue. And basically they've developed the city. They have like small businesses. They have a restaurant called Bandolero uh, named after Sandino where they have like all Sandino themed stuff. And it's like a restaurant and it's lit. Like they have musicians there. That's where actually we got to see the performance with, um, you know, Soberania and stuff like that. And, and so, they, they're promoting small businesses in a revolutionary way. People who also promote Nicaraguan culture and food and music, because one of the problems that exists in the global South, especially in Latin America with globalization and capitalism is that the national autonomy culture is being lost by US imperialism, by, you know, we we're talking earlier about one of the problems with, with Cuba, unfortunately, is with the music is that that revolutionary uh, Son Cubano, that like revolutionary music that's uh, indigenous to the island is being lost and replaced with this nonsense pop, uh, pseudo reggaeton nonsense that, you know, generic that they listen to everywhere and just mainstream. And that's part of the war of imperialism. It's not just economic, it's spiritual, it's cultural, it's ideological. And people in Nicaragua, they're, you know, they still, many people still wear their traditional clothing there, right? It's not like everybody's just uh, wearing jeans and band shirts and, you know, people are maintaining like their, their cultures and their customs, even the food as well. That's another big part of it. Like you go to other countries in Latin America and you have like Burger King and, and you know, for those of us from Latin America and the Caribbean, one thing that often happens is that, you know, like when I would go see my family in Honduras or my cousins will try to impress me. They're like, hey, let me take you to Pizza Hut. Have you ever been to Chili's? I'm like, uh, yeah, I hate that shit. I came here to eat our food. You know what I'm saying? And and in Nicaragua, they don't have that problem because they promote like restaurants that are getting financed and helped by the government. They're promoting the Nicaraguan uh, plate, the diet. They're not, you know, eating deep fried fries and fast food. And so it, there's so many elements of that that they're preserving their national cultures and autonomy uh, with the government. But there's optimism. I think. The biggest thing overall is optimism. I came, me and my girlfriend came back from Nicaragua feeling so optimistic because sometimes in the US, it can be depressing as fuck because as communists, we're the underdogs. You know, it's hard, even us like talking to y'all right now is cool because even though like I'm in Cali, you guys are in the Midwest, you know, there's so much distance, but like there's like people like us are few and far between, unfortunately. And especially people who consider themselves left but have solid anti-imperialist politics. Because you'll find a lot of people who, who are good politically within the US, you know, they're against police killings or they're against this, they're for Medicare for all and all that stuff.
but then they repeat the same nonsense about Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. So it's cool to go somewhere where everybody politically is just advanced and just gets it, you know, and, and, and being there, just like being around so many people who had like hammer and sickle shirts and like red and black shirts and were socialists and were like, yo, fuck the, U like, fuck the US and, and, and long live something, you know, it's just a, it's, it's just a beautiful feeling. I can't describe it. It's kind of like when you meet other communists in real life and you immediately vibe because you already have shared principles and viewpoints. So it felt like that, but going to a whole country like that. So I would say the, the mood is optimistic, but also very careful because we know that with the elections, like you guys pointed out, there's already all these same shitty articles with the same headlines since 2007, you know, uh, Ortega cracks down, tightens his grip on power, this and that, and they're going to try it again, you know, so we have to be ready, we have to be alert and, and show our solidarity and support for the Nicaraguan people. Um, but overall, it's optimistic. People in Nicaragua are very optimistic about the future. That's what, um, that's definitely what your interviews um, make it seem like. People are super, super anti-imperialist and very conscious of, of the tools and the toolbox of imperialism. One of the things that you mentioned there um, that I just wanted to, uh, um, to make a comment on is uh, the relationship of this sort of transnationalization of the culture um, where it's, you can phrase it as a transnationalization, but it's really an Americanization of these traditional cultures. And you see this in the degraded music of a reggaeton artist uh, from Cuba. Uh, his name is Chocolate. I don't know if you've had the unfortunate, uh, <laughs> the unfortunate <laughs> um, opportunity to hear him. He sucks. Right. He's horrible. But he has this one line and this one song that's, Tu eres un pan con croqueta y yo soy una madonna, which it means you're a uh, you're bread with croquettes and I am McDonald's, right? And this is supposed to be like a flex to this other rapper that he's in a he's in like a battle with. And it's so stupid because it's like I would take a bread with croqueta any day over any day. some shitty McDonald's food. Um, but yeah, the following question uh, that we wanted to ask was um, one of the recurring themes in your interviews. Um, and we see that specifically in the last one that you published on the Nista Speak, Nicaraguans, Nicaraguans defend their revolution, which we'll have those linked in the description. Um, one of the recurring themes is the central role religion plays in revolutionaries' awareness of their revolution. Like the people genuinely feel like a divine force is backing their struggle, uh, that God is like with them advancing the cause of the poor. How does this element of religiosity aid the revolutionary spirit of Nicaragua? It's interesting. I What's interesting about the connection between religion and revolution is that at first I, you know, I'm, for me, I'm personally not very religious. I came to communism as well through uh, atheism. I was first really into atheism and Nietzsche. And then from Nietzsche, I discovered Marx and having a materialist understanding of history and reality was really fascinating combined with the class analysis. And a lot of the, the MLF comes from that tradition. But I think throughout history, religion and revolution can play a very interconnected role. Interestingly enough, one of the things that I think was brilliant about Stalin and the Soviet Union was that he understood this very well, that the Russian working class, especially the Russian, the Russian peasant class was deeply religious Eastern Orthodox, they had saints, they had different figures, and 
in a way, Stalin by branding Marxism Leninism, right? He was the after Marx, uh, Lenin said he was a Marxist, right? This is a Marxist revolution. After Lenin passed away, uh, Stalin developed the theory of Marxism Leninism in the foundations of Leninism. And a lot of the branding of Marx and Lenin were kind of like saints, right? Like you had Lenin portrayed as a saint, you had Marx portrayed as a saint, you had the Communist Manifesto and what is to be done as sort of like the Bible. And by using those themes and, and syncretizing them, combining them, I think it was very effective. And people who come from a more ideologically pure background will cringe at that. And I used to be one of those people myself where I would be like, Jesus Christ and, and Che Guevara, like what? Like, how can you do that? How dare you? But it's like, okay, like when you're talking about people who come from colonized backgrounds, oppressed backgrounds, poor working class, regular working class people, they're not about being ideologically pure. They, you wanna relate to people on an everyday basis. And if you can relate socialism through biblical teachings then all so be it, you know, because the main enemy, I'll work with Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, anybody against capitalism and imperialism if we agree on the same fundamental principles because the main enemy is, is the capitalist imperialist system. It's not religion, which is a superstructure, right? In Marxism, we know that there's the economic base, the, the, the economic structure of society determines the superstructure, the legal, found, the legal framework, the religious, the political. So if we change the economic base of society, if we are able to bring jobs and housing, there's gonna, once you have an economic revolution, then you have a social revolution, right? That, th these are the, the stages of revolution that even Marx talks about. First, it's the economic revolution, then it's the social revolution, then it's the political revolution. Because once you have changes in the economy, once you bring people, infrastructure, jobs, housing, education, naturally, they will begin to perhaps move away from religion or have a more scientific understanding of reality. They'll have more progressive legislation. And that has been happening in Nicaragua as well under the Sandinista revolution where some of the views on abortion have been more progressive as time hasn't moved forward. And so in Nicaragua, uh, a lot of people tie in socialism and Sandinismo with Christianity uh, being against usury, right? The fact that usury, that's one of the big things, especially in the Abrahamic faiths, that usury is sin, that lo loaning people money on debt, on high interest debt is a sin, that's bad. That making making money, something from nothing, you know, in, in Christianity, a lot of times it's interestingly enough, it's associated with the occult and with witchcraft, making something out of nothing, right? And, and, and it's considered a sin. And we can say the same thing about capitalism, these bankers who make something, they make value, money, capital from doing nothing. They're just crunching numbers, moving around loans. They're not producing anything of value. And people in Nicaragua understand this very well. And people also revere farmers and campesinos who produce wealth and feed the nation because that's one of the best, uh, what's it called? Uh, ways to serve the people, one of the best sacraments, right? To, to help serve, nourish the people. And there's so many principles that are interconnected with the Sandinismo and Catholicism and Christianity. And I think it can play a very interconnected role. Hugo Chavez did the same thing as well in Venezuela by having, you know, understanding Jesus Christ as one of the first revolutionaries, a Palestinian who fought against the biggest empire on the planet at the time, who was against usury, who 
believe that anybody could be a Christian that, because that's also one of the kind of principles that divided at the time the, the Pharisee and the Christians was that the Pharisees believed that you had to be of a certain lineage to be holy, to be part of the chosen people. Jesus and the Christians came about and said, anybody can be, everybody could go to heaven. It's not about what you're born into. It's about what you carry out in your everyday life. And for Nicaragua, that message is resoundingly clear in terms of the economic sense, because under capitalist Nicaragua, it was only if you were wealthy or white or came from a more class uh, hierarchy lineage that you can go to the good schools, that you could go to the, the fancy hospitals. But now under Sandinismo, everybody is a human being. Everybody has equal opportunity to advance. So a lot of those same principles have been applied in terms of the values and the morals, which I think can be very progressive. Um, interesting to hear you say, I I grew up in a religious family in a pretty religious area. And um, I've been big on saying that uh, since I got into the left, just that I think irreligion um, and, and staunch atheism was one of the biggest mistakes of socialism of the 20th century. And not because of the belief systems, or because of, you know, the merits of, of what the Bible says or whatever, just because of what it means to the people, you know, what religion means to a lot of working people and, and how neoliberalism kind of erases people's culture um, and atomizes people and, and makes them, you know, feel individualistic. Um, and religion is a place where a lot of people can find community. So like you said, not to argue that the superstructure won't change as uh, the economy develops and, and religions won't be, be changed. Um, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's worth it to understand uh, what religion means to the working class and, and what it means to people who have had their communities uh, systematically erased by uh, neoliberalism and imperialist violence. So here's our last question. Um, why do you think that so many Western so-called Marxist academics accept the imperialist narrative on Nicaragua, even the ones who take the right position in relation to other countries under the boot of imperialism? Um, how can we play a role uh, in not only countering the imperialist narrative, but the more advanced version of that that appears from this left-wing academia that you've been uh, talking about a lot here? I think a lot of the left-wing, quote-unquote, left-wing academia, especially, I would say, the, the boomers and the some, unfortunately, even in the youth, fall, a lot of, fall for a lot of the lies about Nicaragua because... I think their analysis hasn't been updated and because they haven't been following Nicaragua for many years and they've eaten up. And unfortunately, I have to say as well, I think there is a sector that is also starting to turn on Cuba as well. I, it was so disappointing seeing after this attempted uh, coup attempt, the regime change protest, how many people actually fell for it, man. I was just like, oh my God, like, you know, people who had like, and the people who fell for it the most were Unfortunately, a lot of people tied to the NGO industrial complex, the academia industrial complex, because having a pro-Cuba, pro-Nicaragua, pro-Venezuela defense is not trendy, right? It's not cool to defend Cuba. It's not cool to defend, you know, so, and, and a lot of those spaces, they're really great at pointing out problems, right? But the second you defend something, you're seen as, oh, you're an apologist for Cuba. You know, you're an apologist. I heard this all the time when I was defending Assad and, and uh, Ba'athists in Syria against US imperialism. They're like, you're an Assad apologist, you know, all this stuff. And so I think within academia, it's designed to, it, because the NGOs run it, like the Ford Foundation, all these, like, you're not gonna get a grant. You're not gonna get a teaching position. You're not gonna get your book signing or contract 
if you're defending an anti-imperialist government. And there's some sort of self-censorship uh, censorship that goes on in a lot of those spaces where people self-censor, like those, they'll point out, like there, there's people who will, they love talking about the historical stuff, right? They're like, oh, you know, uh, Batista and, and also Somoza, but then you ask them about the present stuff and they kind of don't want to comment on it because they, they're scared that they're going to lose their tenure or in their, their teaching position or their book contract because that's how the empire controls people. That's how you're controlled. That's why, I, to me personally, I prefer to do my own shit because nobody could ever come and tell me, yo, I didn't like what you said about, you know, Ortega or this and that. You're not going to be teaching next semester. You're not going to be doing this. You know, so that's why I think, like, to a degree, like, I kind of like doing my own stuff, for, you know, for, for that reason. But in particular, I think, um, I also think a lot of people have fallen for a lot of the lies about Nicaragua more than uh, other anti-imperialist countries like Cuba and Venezuela. Because I think, I think there's se several things that go into it. I think, A, uh, part of the reason is that Nicaragua is a smaller country. You know, Cuba, I think, has like 12 or 13 million people. Venezuela has like 22 or 23 million people. These are pretty sizable countries and, you know, just in general have more recognition in media. Nicaragua has six or seven million people. So we're talking about a very small country, very impoverished country still that's still struggling to, to remove the, the boot of U.S. imperialism off its neck. Um, but I also think that a lot of the spells of the ID poll imperialism were used very hardly against Nicaragua, especially with Daniel Ortega. Uh, I think that they, you know, they've accused Daniel several times of being sexist and, and, and all this stuff, which is not true. Like you look at these allegations and it's, and it's complete nonsense. They're unsubstantiated claims. And, but people fall, excuse me, people fall for it, right? The, 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 the environmental, the, you know, the, pro, the canal protests, right? The environmental movement. You ask most people on the quote unquote environmental left in the US, about Nicaragua, they side with the neocons. They're like, oh yeah, Ortega's a, a, a dictator. We need to take him out. And these are quote unquote, like anarchists, you know, pro-indigenous environmentalists, you know, and, and they have the same talking points as the State Department. So this is really embarrassing, right? The same thing as well with the Miskitu indigenous people. They claim that Ortega's oppressing them. He's not, the Sandinistas are not doing that. Um, they claim that women, you know, abortion, right? That, that women have uh, no rights in Nicaragua, also not true as well. Not perfect, right? And there's still advances to be made, but I think I think so many of the elements of social conservatism that do exist in Nicaragua have been weaponized against the Sandinista government. And what they do is that they they uh, exploit the, the vulnerabilities of a revolution and use it against them to be like, oh, we as Western leftists, we have a more advanced analysis of, of feminism or or the environment or this, and they use it against the enemy. So I think that's one of the reasons why. I also think that it tends to be one of the, the challenges, even within the global South, because there are levels of oppression within the global South. Countries are, are there are different levels of oppression. So you can't compare the poverty of Central American countries like Nicaragua or Honduras or Salvador to, for example, like Argentina or Brazil or, or even like Chile, uh, because it's totally different. Like the, in Latin America, the countries like Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Venezuela, Colombia, you know, they've already gone through that industrialization process through capitalism. 
they already have their own infrastructure. You go to Mexico or Argentina or Brazil, they have Mexican theater companies, they have Mexican telecommunication companies, you know, Brazilian uh, manufacturing companies, uh, Brazilian transportation. That doesn't exist for the poorest of the poorest, Central America and the Caribbean. Like you go to Haiti, they're not, they don't have a, a Haitian publishing industry. There's no Haitian film industry. There's, everything is important. They're, they're so, the level of poverty and exploitation is so bad that they're forced to import everything. So I think even within the global South, we have to be very clear that there's a very, um, that there's a degradation of oppression. There's still a spectrum, right? So even though like, you know, and I think that's why with Cuba and Venezuela I tend to get more recognition within the left because they already have more of the means and the, the infrastructure developed already to have, you know, like even just branding, right? Like, you know, with Cuba, you know, everybody knows the, the, the Cuban cigar. By the way, a lot of cig Cuban cigars that, that are fake, um, that the that are that they say are Cuban cigars are, are made in Nicaragua because Nicaragua has a very big uh, cigar industry, um, and Cuba and Nicaragua cooperate very closely on on tobacco production, which is pretty interesting. But you know, Venezuela already also had more infrastructure. They have a subway, like so. I think there's levels of uh, development that play into like the attention people give. We see this happen as well in the Middle East. You know, you can't compare a country like Yemen to Saudi Arabia, right? It's still, even though they're both Arab nations, they're both right, literally right next to each other, one is fundamentally wealthier than the other. Yemen is like our, one of the poorest countries in, in the Arab world, if not the poorest, Afghanistan. You know, compare that to Qatar, to Saudi Arabia. So even within the global South, there's difference. And, and as a country is bigger and wealthier, more attention tends to be on those bigger and wealthier nations. So that's why I even tell people like, it's not even just Nicaragua, there's revolutionary, like, you know, look at, uh, in, even in Asia, right? There's Laos, if, for example, Laos still has a communist government. They still have a communist party. Um, you know, Laos doesn't get as much attention as China or Vietnam because it's significantly smaller and poorer, but they're also building socialism. And for me, honestly, it also is even more heroic when an extremely poor and oppressed colonized nation is able to still maintain that because it just shows what, what you're up against. And that's why I think like it's important for people to really take the time to to dig deep into studying revolutions in, in Africa as well. Like you know, Zimbabwe, uh, Angola. There's so many countries around the world, even the Caribbean, Grenada, like the New Jewel movement, Maurice Bishop. I mean, he's one of the most underrated communists ever. He was a Marxist Leninist. Nobody ever talks about Maurice Bishop. He never gets the recognition he deserves because Grenada is a very small, impoverished colonized nation. So I think within the left that those elements of kind of chauvinism still exist and it's important to really dig deep and, and deep, uh, dig down and really study the, the, the poorest of the poor, the most oppressed, because you'll find some really inspirational history there. I think part of the problem too, living in the West is just like people here cannot understand underdevelopment because we've lived in a country that siphoned, you know, the resources from um, the global South for so long. And, you know, despite the fact that 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, we do live in an abundance of wealth. And it's hard to even understand what it's like to live in a country without a developed industry. Um, like Haiti, for example, is essentially a republic of NGOs with no central government. And their a president was recently assassinated by Colombian mercenaries. These things are incomprehensible um, for somebody who's grown up in a Western democracy, you know, without 
uh, taking the time to study these countries deeply, which uh, a lot of people don't tend to do. Um, and when you're talking about the academic industrial complex there, I, I want you know, I always recommend the book Dark Money by Jane Meyer, which kind of goes, it's not a comprehensive study, but it talks about these libertarian think tanks uh, that are funneled money by billionaires who, who call this charitable donations, and they actually use it as a tax write-off. Um, and this money is funneled into the most prestigious institutions in, in the Western world um, to, to get them to be more neoliberal, to get them to be more right wing. Um, and as I said, that book's more of a um, from a liberal perspective, critiquing the right wing money that's been funneled into U.S. academia. But it can give you an idea of how much, you know, these narratives are controlled, even in our institutions of higher education where you wouldn't expect them to be. Um, and, and then the last thing that came to mind when you were talking there is just everyone in the West is against imperialism in hindsight, right? They're against imperialism 10 or 20 years after the intervention happens. And I don't know anybody in the West who is in favor of the Iraq war now, you know, but in 2001, after 9-11, how many leftists were saying that we need to take out uh, Saddam because he's such a bad guy. Um, and, and you see this, this fetishization of failure, right? You know, we love Comrade Allende, we love Salvador Allende, but you know, you're allowed to praise him in the West because he was taken out in a coup. You're not allowed to praise Fidel or Ortega or anybody who have actually developed and constructed systems of social welfare. Um, so yeah, it, and as you said, of course, it's not trendy, it's not popular to defend these countries here. Um, which is part of the reason people do it, but you know, it's it's very important in our opinion to to maintain that anti-imperialist stance. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, it's a uh, great points, and um, I think that you know that's what I hope to do with my content, with my videos, is just to help inform people about what's going on, to show that optimism, to show that great things are being done, and that it's okay to defend anti-imperialist countries and. Just, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is fear. A lot of people are scared of coming out and defending anti-imperialist leaders. And as long as you're principled, you know, you'll, history will, like Fidel said, right, history will absolve you if you take the right stance and right position. I remember when in 2014, 2013, when Obama was talking about possibly bombing and invading Syria, the whole quote unquote chemical weapons attack and everybody bought it man it was it was really sad to see I was, in, I was living in New York at the time I'm born and raised in New York but I live in LA now and I, I went to a hands-off Syria march and so many people on the quote-unquote left were on the side of the Syrian opposition and they were like we need to invade and this and that and now like you ask everybody everybody's like yeah you know no, we don't want a war on Syria that it was all probably bullshit about the chemical weapons attack why would Assad do that? So it's like, at the moment, it, it takes a, a level of courage and principle to be like, no, like th that's wrong, this is my position. And eventually, you know, things will kind of come back. And it's been like that. It's been like that for many things, honestly, for Fidel, for Hugo Chavez, for, for Nicaragua, for the left, being a social, like if, you're, if you have a, a, a groundbreaking or revolutionary idea, at, at that time, it's always gonna be attacked it's always because you're challenging the dominant system. You're, you're challenging the dominant order. Even capitalism, like under feudalism, when people were promoting capitalism, that was seen as a challenge to the feudal order. And they were attacking the capitalists and the rise of the factories and all that. And so that's just the dialectic of history, you know? And that's something that we have to understand as Marxists that whenever we're proposing a new idea, even within the left, like even, even within the quote unquote MLF, 
there are some boomers who are still stuck in doing the same old strategies and same old tactics. You know, we're just gonna write a statement or go to a street corner and yell and with a with a megaphone and a, they're using the same tactics and strategies and they're not changing and adapting, which is what Marxism is all about. That's what the dialectic is all about, is changing your strategy and tactic based on the new material conditions. And I think we have to apply that as well with our analysis, with our material analysis that, like I defend Iran all the time. Iran is not a uh, outwardly socialist country, right? They're the Islamic Republic of Iran, but I recognize that Iran is anti-imperialist. They have a lot of progressive aspects to their banking system, they trade with Venezuela and Nicaragua, with Cuba. They side with the anti-imperialist forces in the Middle East. They don't fit my perfect ideological checklist, right? But that's besides the point. Like we have to adapt our analysis to reality. We shouldn't adapt reality to our analysis. And that's a problem that a lot of the ultras have. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you for coming on, Ramiro. Your wealth of knowledge is amazing. Um, and this is a topic we can talk about for hours but i'm sure you have stuff to do um so uh, please everyone go check out his uh, channel it's the same name ramiro satian funes um we'll link it in the description we'll also link the um the unmasking imperialism series as well as the nicaragua against uh, imperialism series and the the two uh, the documentary and the recent one that you did for the 42nd anniversary so thank you for coming on comrade Thank you so much, comrades, and continue to do the great work with Midwestern Marks. You guys are doing a fantastic job, and I hope to speak with you guys again. Thank you. Solidarity, Romero. Peace out.